rhapsody, enthusiastic expression of feeling, an epic poem, a recitation, highly emotional utterance, literary, music in a regular form, stitched together, improvised, a collection of effusive, extravagant discourse, rapturous, ecstasy, You're listening to A Rose Rhapsody. I understand. And now, the read. Waiting for the Suzuki Goulds by Lee Flayton. Read by Chris Stezen. I'm still not sure if the Suzuki Goulds really existed. Neither does Trey, my friend with whom I've been sitting, masked, several feet apart, and socially distant, to enjoy the greatest of all New York City pastimes, people watching. There we were just a few weeks ago, shooting the breeze by the Gertrude Stein statue in Bryant Park, when the Suzuki Goulds first appeared. They walked up the ramp, meandered past us, and sat on a bench just a few feet away. After a good half hour of them doing nothing in particular, while Trey and I stole glances in mesmerized silence, Trey said, Are you seeing us? To which I replied, Oh, yeah. They were a most fantastical family, and we had them all to ourselves. The elderly father was fairly nondescript. He wore a black tee with black pants and sandals, so his gnarled toes could roam free. But the mother was something else although she was hard to see beyond her floppy hat and Jackie O sunglasses, and the yellow hair that might have been a wig that hung down over her shoulders. She looked like she never cracked a smile, nor let even a hint of skin stand naked in the sun. And then there was the son, or daughter, in black shorts and a black tee, like their father, but with black surgical gloves wielding a play sword like a pirate straight out of the Caribbean. They might have been eight or nine and had close-cropped light brown mohawk with curls and played happily alone while their parents sat in silence on the bench. We were overjoyed to see them again the following weekend. Same clothes, same unmasked faces. Again, they walked up the ramp. Then the parents sat wordlessly by Gertrude Stein while their child staged a sword fight with an invisible foe. Short time later, they walked away, kids skipping ahead of them, swashbuckling through the air as they left the park. It rained the following Saturday, but when we saw them on Mother's Day, the Suzuki Goulds really came alive. Trey and I set up shop, and when I saw the sword lead the charge up the ramp, my heart actually jumped. But they didn't stay. They never sat on the bench. They just ambled by Gertrude Stein, exited the park, never looked back. It was then that we began to tell each other their story. You see, the father, John Ellis Bennington Gould, or John E.B. Gould, is a successful art dealer and lives with his business partner and wife, Yuki Suzuki, and their child, Terry Ellis, in the brownstone next to the Bryant Park Hotel. Terry Ellis is a germaphobe, may be on the spectrum, and has gender identity issues that have positively befuddled their father. 
Yes, the Suzuki ghouls have been hit hard as of late. What with the pandemic, Yuki Suzuki's recent lupus diagnosis and subsequent difficulty procuring hydroxychloroquine to treat it, thanks to you-know-who, and, although we don't talk about it much, the pesky opium addiction John picked up during those drug-fueled art-buying sprees he went on with Dennis Hopper back in the day. You never know when that shit's gonna flare back up. We met the next Saturday in anticipation of their usual entrance around two. Just after Terry Ellis's Zoom piano lesson, Yuki Suzuki's online restorative yoga class, and John's office hours, during which he holds up, chases the dragon, and stares at avant-garde art. Trey and I sat, masked, several feet apart, and socially distant, just behind Gertrude Stein. We waited and fretted taking turns, gazing like sentinels over to the ramp to see if they were on their way. But then two o'clock came and went, and the Suzuki ghouls, just like Beckett's Godot, never came. The next weekend, we tried again, but Trey and I were inconsolable, which was actually fine because it's hard to console anyone while seated, masked, several feet apart, and socially distant anyway. But then it dawned on us. Maybe they were a figment of our collective imagination. An optical illusion like all the masked faces? And outdoor dining only restaurants? Perhaps Trey and I were daydreaming an escape from this life we're now living, and the Suzuki Goulds were just a story we told each other to try to root this ridiculous time in some kind of reality. I asked Estrican, I mean, Trey, if we could go back to the park this Saturday. To try again. And if they don't come? He asked. We'll come back Sunday, I said. And then the day after? Possibly, I said. And so on. That was Waiting for the Suzuki Ghouls by Lee Flayton. Read by me, Chris Desmond. Here I cannot picture America as altogether an Elysium. Perhaps from the ordinary standpoint, I know but little about the country. I cannot give its latitude or longitude. I cannot compute the value of its dry goods, and I have no very close acquaintance with its politics. These are matters which may not interest you, and they certainly are not interesting to me. The first thing that struck me on landing in America was that if the Americans are not the most well-dressed people in the world, they are the most comfortably dressed. Men are seen there with the dreadful chimney-pot hat, but there are very few hatless men. Men wear the shocking swallowtail coat, but few are to be seen with no coat at all. There is an air of comfort in the appearance of the people, which is a marked contrast to that scene in this country, where too often people are seen in close contact with rags. The next thing particularly noticeable is that everybody seems to be in a hurry to catch a train. 
this is a state of things which is not favourable to poetry or romance. Had Romeo or Juliet been in a constant state of anxiety about trains, or had their minds been agitated by the question of return tickets, Shakespeare could not have given us those lovely balcony scenes which are so full of poetry and pathos. America is the noisiest country that ever existed. One is waked up in the morning not by the singing of the nightingale, but by the steam whistle. It is surprising that the sound practical sense of the Americans does not reduce this intolerable noise. All art depends upon exquisite and delicate sensibility, and such continual turmoil must ultimately be destructive of the musical faculty. There is not so much beauty to be found in American cities as in Oxford, Cambridge, Salisbury or Winchester, where are lovely relics of a beautiful age, but still there is a good deal of beauty to be seen in them now and then, but only where the American has not attempted to create it. Where the Americans have attempted to produce beauty, they have signally failed. A remarkable characteristic of the Americans is the manner in which they have applied science to modern life. This is apparent in the most cursory stroll through New York. In England, an inventor is regarded almost as a crazy man, and in too many instances, invention ends in disappointment and poverty. In America, an inventor is honoured, help is forthcoming, and the exercise of ingenuity, the application of science to the work of man, is there the shortest road to wealth. There is no country in the world where machinery is so lovely as in America. I have always wished to believe that the line of strength and the line of beauty are one. That wish was realised when I contemplated American machinery. It was not until I had seen the waterworks at Chicago that I realised the wonders of machinery, the rise and fall of the steel rods, the symmetrical motion of the great wheels is the most beautifully rhythmic thing I have ever seen. One is impressed in America, but not favourably impressed, by the inordinate size of everything. The country seems to try to bully one into a belief in its power by its impressive bigness. I was disappointed with Niagara. Most people must be disappointed with Niagara. Every American bride is taken there, and the sight of the stupendous waterfall must be one of the earliest, if not the keenest, disappointments in American married life. One sees it under bad conditions very far away, the point of view not showing the splendour of the water. To appreciate it, really, one has to see it from underneath the fall, and to do that it is necessary to be dressed in a yellow oil skin, which is as ugly as a Macintosh and I hope none of you ever wears one. It is a consolation to know, however, that such an artist as Madame Bernhardt has not only worn that yellow ugly dress, but has been photographed in it. Perhaps the most beautiful part of America is the West, to reach which, however, involves a journey by rail of six days, racing along tied to an ugly tin kettle of a steam engine, 
I found but poor consolation for this journey in the fact that the boys who infest the cars and sell everything that one can eat, or should not eat, were selling editions of my poems, vilely printed on a kind of grey blotting paper, for the low price of ten cents. Calling these boys on one side, I told them that though poets like to be popular, they desire to be paid, and selling editions of my poems without giving me a profit is dealing a blow at literature which must have a disastrous effect on poetical aspirants. The invariable reply that they made was that they themselves made a profit out of the transaction, and that was all they cared about. It is a popular superstition that in America a visitor is invariably addressed as stranger. I was never once addressed as stranger. When I went to Texas, I was called captain. When I got to the center of the country, I was addressed as colonel. And on arriving at the borders of Mexico, as general. On the whole, however, sir, the old English method of addressing people, is the most common. As for slang, I did not hear much of it, though a young lady who had changed her clothes after an afternoon dance did say that after the heel kick she shifted her day goods. American youths are pale and precocious, or sallow and supercilious, but American girls are pretty and charming, little oases of pretty unreasonableness in a vast desert of practical common sense. Every American girl is entitled to have twelve young men devoted to her. They remain her slaves, and she rules them with charming nonchalance. The men are entirely given to business. They have, as they say, their brains in front of their heads— they are also exceedingly acceptive of new ideas. Their education is practical. We base the education of children entirely on books, but we must give a child a mind before we can instruct the mind. Children have a natural antipathy to books. Handicraft should be the basis of education. Boys and girls should be taught to use their hands to make something, and they would be less apt to destroy and be mischievous. In going to America, one learns that poverty is not a necessary accompaniment to civilization. There, at any rate, is a country that has no trappings, no pageants, and no gorgeous ceremonies. I saw only two processions. One was the fire brigade, preceded by the police. The other was the police, preceded by the fire brigade. Every man, when he gets to the age of 21, is allowed a vote, and thereby immediately acquires his political education. The Americans are the best politically educated people in the world. It is well worth one's while to go to a country which can teach us the beauty of the word freedom and the value of the thing liberty. You've been listening to Impressions of America by Oscar Wilde. I'm David Brian Jackson.
If I don't drive around the park, I'm pretty sure to make my mark. If I'm in bed each night by 10, I may get back my looks again. If I abstain from fun and such, I'll probably amount to much. But I shall stay the way I am. Because I do not give a damn. Observation by Dorothy Parker. I'm Leslie Kopolinski. drop the first Monday of every month and can be found on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you take your listening pleasure. That fabulous horn you've been hearing belongs to Marcus Roots, along with his collaborator on the keys, Adrian Ruiz. Additional tracks from Sessions of Rhapsody in Blue feature guitarist Matt Gold, Hater Garcia on percussion, and the tenor saxophone of Irvin Pierce. To learn more about us and what we do, head over to theroserhapsody.com. And if you love interesting new content as much as we do, spread the word or drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. week's podcast was produced by Trevor Cochran and Richard C. Washer and is a product of the Rose Theatre Company. All rights reserved. I'm Leslie Kopolinski. Now let's get back to that horn. <laughs>